smashing. Give everyone the best possible start to the day. See special packs for details. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're taking a look at UI frameworks. How can the custom needs of a highly usable application be met with off-the-shelf tools? We speak to UX designer Stephanie Walter to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes a new article to the website five days a week? That's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In How to Create a Card Matching Game Using Angular and RxJS, Anna Prenzel harnesses the concept of reactive programming to build a simple interactive game by listening to asynchronous data streams. In the second article in the series, Sarah Drasner and Jeff Graham talk us through how to create a headless WordPress site on the Jamstack. This part of the series looks at how to set up WordPress as a headless backend for managing content consumed by your JavaScript frontend running on Netlify. Dan Halliday reviews the standard approach to creating animated flip cards in the article Magic Flip Cards, Solving a Common Sizing Problem, and in doing so, introduces an improved method which solved a classic issue that many designers face when implementing this much-loved interface pattern. Philip Keeley brings us the first in the series about Django development with the article Django Highlights, User Models and Authentication. In this first part, Philip looks at creating dynamic applications that can identify and authenticate users using the popular server-side framework. And in How to Create Maps with React and Leaflet, Sajir Abidi demonstrates how the Leaflet Interactive Maps library can be paired with React to create powerful visualizations from adjacent data source. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. She's a user-centered designer and expert in mobile experience who crossed delightful products and interfaces with a special focus on performance. She's worked on projects for clients such as the University of Luxembourg, European Investment Bank, BMW and Microsoft to name but a few. She's a Google developer expert in product design and a passionate teacher, sharing her knowledge in numerous blog posts, articles, workshops and conference presentations. So we know she's an expert user experience designer, but did you know she once had a job fitting carpets with Sir Elton John? My smashing friends, please welcome Stephanie Walter. Hello, Stephanie. How are you? Hi, I'm smashing and love the introduction. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you today about a particular issue, and that's the subject of using off-the-shelf user interface frameworks. Now, you're a, a user experience designer and you work with lots of different clients, and your job is to help those clients create the best possible user experiences through crafting highly usable user interfaces. So the idea of being able to do that with an off-the-shelf set of tools seems like a bit of a stretch to me. Uh, is the use of UI frameworks something you see a lot throughout your work? Yeah, it's something I'm seeing a lot, especially in the last few years, because I I started working with an agency and now I work within uh, the company, so in those uh, super big IT tech teams. And yeah, at the moment, uh, there's like a lot of framework use. Like the one that I've seen the most is like Material UI. 
So um, material UI, uh, basically material design is a Google design kind of guidelines and thing. And material UI is the team from Angular, but also the team from React. They created the, their own framework using uh, kind of the look and feel of the material design from Google. But it has nothing to do with Google anymore. It's just like they, I don't know, I think they liked kind of the look and feel. So at the moment, those are the two main UI framework I work with. And also uh, there's something called Ant Design that grew quite popular. It's a React framework. I don't know if they have Angular though. I think it was made by a team in China. And uh, it's interesting because it not only does it provide like the components, everything in React, but if you go to their website, you also get the sketch files which is actually quite interesting because then it kind of motivates or helps the designer build or shape the interface into the UI components used by that framework. So yeah, it's something I've seen a lot, uh, especially in big IT teams, because most of the times those don't have a designer. Like at the moment, I'm basically UX team of one in my small team at a European Investment Bank. So it's me as a UX designer and I work with a team of developers, business analysts and all the good people, but still it's like one designer for the whole project. And until I arrived, there was no designer. <laughs> so it's kind of a, a solution implemented in a lot of companies, especially uh, on internal products, for instance, where they, you usually say, okay, we don't really need a designer for that. We just need something that works for our internal users. And let's just use a framework because it's convenient for the developers. Most of the components are already there. And since they don't have designers in the team, then it's kind of replacing, uh, as to say, the role of a UI designer. But yeah, problem with that is that, okay, then you have the components, but the role of the UI designer is not just to decide about should the button be red, green, orange, blue, whatever. Usually the role of the UI designer is information architecture, understanding user needs. So everything that goes beyond the interface. So even if you have this kind of framework that kind of takes care of the whole UI, so visually what you see on the screen, you still need someone at some point to do the job of understanding what do we put on the screen? How is it going to behave? Um, what happens when we click here? How does the user accomplish their goal? How do we go from point A to point B? Because we can use a model, we can use tabs, we can use all of the components. So that's why it's always kind of a little bit complex and tricky. Is it possible, do you think, to be able to create a usable user interface using a, an off-the-shelf UI framework, or is it always going to be a bit of a compromise? I kind of hope so. <laughs> I kind of hope so, because otherwise I'm building not usable interfaces. So this answer is totally biased. But yeah, I think it is, but it also depends on the level of compromise you're willing to do. And there's compromises on both sides. Like at the moment, I'm compromising a lot of uh, buttons, for instance, because you have like some really specific buttons in the material you are. And I don't really like the ripple effect on the button. I think it works great on mobile because on mobile, you need a, a kind of a big feedback when user clicks or touches the button. But on desktop, this kind of ripple effect that goes all the way on the button, it's a little bit overkill, especially when there's a lot of buttons. But still, we are going to keep this ripple effect because it would be super complex to remove it because this was built into the React framework. 
and to have another hover effect on this button, something more subtle that will not be this kind of whooshy thing here, it would be super complex. So this is the kind of compromises you do. But on the meantime, I don't compromise on specific things, which is uh, custom components. Where we I was working before uh, the current client for um, travel and um, um, airline company. And like airline has some really, really super specific needs, like uh, the calendar for the airline, for instance. You want to put prices, you want to put like, uh, um, if you don't travel to this destination as, or on a specific date, you don't want to put that you have this backer and an arrival and the basic calendar of most of those UI framework don't provide these kind of things. So at some point you can say, okay, we will just use the calendar they have and that's it. You need to go beyond that. So most of the compromises are basically built on, do we use the basic component? Do we create a, a custom one that will fit the user needs? Or do we make a mix of the two? In the case of the calendar, for instance, we use the calendar grid. So we use the basic component and then we enhance it with a customization on top of that. So it was a lot of React development for that one. And yeah, so usually you do a lot of compromises. So it sounds like the using a user interface framework can get you a certain amount of the way there, but to really have a, a good user interface as a result of it, you need to do quite a bit of customization on top. Usually, yeah. Does that customization go beyond theming? Yeah, my developer wished it wouldn't go beyond theming. Eugene, if you listen to me, I think you would be super happy if we would just change a few colors and everything. But yes, at some, at some point, you need to go beyond the customization because first, like UI framers are like, are like Lego tools is kind of a toolbox. So you have a lot of different components in the box, but this doesn't build a page. You still need a header, you still need a footer, you still need extra content that was not in the framework. So sometimes you can tweak a component into what you need it, what you need it. Like from what I understood, we are using the card component to build the model windows. But the thing with the model windows is that it doesn't really behave like a card. So you are kind of going a little bit beyond that. You need a background with obscurification. You need to trigger it on click while usually a card is already there in the interface. So we are using this card component because it has a lot of the things we need, like the background, the header, uh, the title at the top, some buttons at the bottom. So we have the structure and then we tweak it a little bit. But we end up with uh, some conflicts sometimes about semantics HTML as well. Because, for instance, I uh, wanted to have uh, buttons that didn't have like a button shape. So just like link button. And the developer said, okay, so we use a link, like a href link. I said, no, this is not a link. It's a button. When I click on it, it doesn't open a new page. It clears everything that is into the form. So it should be, technically, from a semantical point of view, it should be a button. Yeah, but it doesn't exist in the framework. Say, okay, I know. So what do we do? So usually you start discussing these uh, little things. And since I'm really annoying uh, my developers with accessibility also, this is another extra layer of like trying to make sure that uh, we have the basic components that they work well, but also that they are semantically like, I don't want to have like buttons with uh, divs within divs within divs. Otherwise we'll have issues uh, in the end. So I guess starting a new project that's going to use a UI framework 
you probably need to start with some sort of user research. Yes. Is that fair? You should. You need to. <laughs> so, yes, uh, usually you can have all the components you want. You still need to know what do your users need on the pages, how are they going to navigate, you need to build a flow. So usually, even before deciding on a framework, what we do is like we go to our users, we talk to them, we try to understand their needs. So at the moment, I'm quite lucky because the users are internally within the bank. So we do a lot of uh, workshops with them. And it's uh, you have to imagine it's a super complex interface. We are migrating from something that was built, I don't know, I think 10 or even 15 years ago to something all new, shiny, using Material UI React. So it's quite a big change. And you have to understand that during those 15 years, everyone who wanted something could go to the support and then they asked the IT team to implement it. So at the moment, my interface is like 400 pages with tables within tables within tables with data tables and stuff that shouldn't even be a tables. Like uh, uh, we have a lot of things that are just like key value, key value, key value. So they build a table with two columns. I'm like, no. Maybe we can do something better with that, with that. So at the moment, what we are doing is uh, we did some user research to understand the different goals of the users. So what we, we identified is that what they do with the interface, they have some uh, planification uh, goals. They need to plan their work. So I want to know that this operation is going to go to this meeting. So I need that and that uh, schedule, stuff like that. They want to monitor things. They want to report the data. So monitoring is just like looking at the data and making sure everything is fine. Reporting is being able to export the data to do something with it. They want to share and to kind of collaborate with colleagues. And all of that we discovered by discussing directly with the users. And what we discovered is that actually the some of the things we were planning on migrating at the end are some of the most important things on a daily basis for the users. So the planification, user goal is one of the kind of biggest one at the moment. So we are really, really working on that. So yeah, we do user interview. Now we are in the phase where at the moment we were super high level saying, okay, we need to build the shell. We need to understand navigation. But at the moment we didn't really go through the, all of the data. <laughs> And this is now what we are going to do. And it's interesting because, uh, so we have a lot of tables and we said we can either go the kind of not smart way and just put the tables in the new interface and we're done. Or we can say, okay, let's try to understand what those tables are. What do our users use those tables for? And then we are, maybe some of the tables could be displayed as data visualization. And then to do that, you need to understand the whole business. <laughs> So, so that it makes uh, the data make sense. So if you have a nice framework and you say, okay, let's use this uh, chart, I think it's called chart.js framework, you have a lot of things. You can have histogram, pie charts, and graphs and everything. But at some point, you still need a designer to help you decide, okay, this data does make sense if we show it into a graph or it makes more sense to show it as a part, uh, as a pie, because we want to show part of the whole, or we want to compare the evolution for one country in the next last 10 years, then histogram is more interesting. So based on what the user wants to do with the data, you are going to display them a whole other way. And usually it's not a developer job to do that. Exactly. Our developer, they are a super smart guy, 
I'm sorry, but I only work with guy developers at the moment. I wish I had some ladies, but no, not at the moment. So super smart guys, but they are not super qualified to say, okay, this data should be displayed like that, 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 and that. So in the end, you still need some designers to go to talk to the users, understand what you can do with the data. And this goes like far beyond just saying, okay, this should be a tab bar or this should be a navigation on the left. And after making those sorts of decisions based on talking to the users, would you typically take the resulting prototypes or, or, or designs back to users to test them again to see if they understand your type of chart choice, for example? Yeah, we did a lot actually, which is really nice because then you don't develop something until you know it's going to be useful and uh, usable. So mm, I'm lying a little bit. It depends. If it's quicker to actually develop the thing because they have already most of the components, what I usually do is I I do really quick paper uh, prototyping and then we develop the thing because it's quick even without the data. If it's something complex, something really, really new that will take a lot of time to develop, then we say, okay, we design a few screens and we do some uh, testing directly on the screen. So we have a tool, uh, it's called InVision, where basically you put all of your design, you can create uh, links between the different parts. The thing is, it also depends what you want to test. If you want to test forms, for instance, it's a nightmare to test those in InVision because the people can't really feel them, and especially on mobile, for, for example. So... It's always kind of uh, being smart. What's the fastest and cheapest way? Is it faster and cheaper to test only designs? Is this enough? For forms, usually not really because you have autocompletes and all of the heavy lifting you put in the front end to help actually the user fill the form. So for forms, maybe it's more efficient to actually build the form and test it. But for new things, yeah, we do a lot of designs. We go to the users. So at the moment, we I do do one-on-ones, but my users are really busy people. It's like European Investment Bank. So they don't have that much time. So what we usually do is uh, if we come to one-on-one with, with the users, we do some uh, small meetings, like more like focus groups. And it's also interesting because then you have kind of a confrontation sometimes. Some people say, yeah, I think it works for me because I work like that and that. And then nobody people are like, oh, you work like that? Actually, no, I do it like that and that. So... So it's also interesting to kind of have a few people in the room and to listen just like to the conversation, taking notes and you say, oh, maybe then we could do that. And this component would be better based on what just, I just heard and things like that. If you're working with a more general audience for your product, uh, so perhaps not um, internal users like you have, but more the general public, are there inexpensive ways that... Um, designers can get that user research in? Are there are there easier ways if you don't know directly who your users are going to be? You should know who they are going to be otherwise. Kind of that's the job of the marketing people before building the product. But yeah, we did some Gary user testing, for instance. You can still use InVision, for instance. So you can build uh, some prototypes in InVision and then you can recruit the users through um, social media, for instance. I was working for um, a product that helped, um, what's the name, Um, car dealerships, uh, mechanics to uh, repair things and then to also uh, inform the client about extra repairs, things like that. So 
we had already kind of a growing community on LinkedIn and Facebook. So what you can do is you can recruit those people. You can do remote testing. Like we are having a conversation in a tool, uh, like uh, an online tool. You can uh, do some screen sharing. So we did that some, for some project also. It, I would just give you one advice is uh, test the tool before because I was using, uh, it was called Appearing, but I think they changed the name for Whereby or something. But it's fully in the browser, so I said, okay, it's nice because then the users don't need to install anything. But the users were not on a real computer. They were into a VM, into a Citrix, and, uh, uh, and they didn't have microphones. So we, what we ended up doing is like they used my tool to share the screen. They were clicking on the prototype, and at the same time, I had them over the phone, like a landline phone, to talk to them directly. So there's always a way, and this was uh, quite cheap because... It was, uh, yeah, one uh, full day of, uh, like, recruiting. Uh, I think we had 10 users or something like that. But, yeah, you can do a lot of things. Like, even if you can't go face-to-face, I've done a lot of usability testing directly on Skype or things like that. So it's there's always some cheap ways to do that. When it comes to choosing a UI framework to work with, if that's the route that you're going, is that something that you would, leave just to the developers or is that something that um, designers should get involved in too? For me, you should involve the whole team, like the designers, the developers, maybe also architects, uh, if you have some, because uh, like how the framework is built might also influence this kind of things. Unfortunately, most of the time when I arrive on the project, the framework was already decided. So no, actually it's funny, like either it's already decided or they asked me to validate the choice of the framework, but I didn't do any user research. I have strictly no idea what's in the project because they didn't even show me the screens. And they're like, yeah, do you think we can use this framework? Is that, I don't know. <laughs> what do we have as screens? So they ended up showing me a few screens, which was a um, Windows uh, native app they wanted to migrate in the cloud. And they say, yeah, we only need uh, buttons and mostly like forms and things like that. But it's really hard to say, yeah, go for this framework. We have all of the components we need or like don't go if you don't have a rough idea of what's your content going to be, what is the navigation. So I think you should still have kind of a global overview before choosing your frameworks, unless you're 100% sure you have all of the components. But I have a feeling that most of the time the framework choice is basically based on what technologies the developer like at the moment? Do they have experience with a framework before that? Like we used Ant on some um, some projects just because a few developers had experience with that and they really liked it and they were kind of efficient using Ant. And for the Material React UI, it's the same. It's like because the developer already used it on previous projects, so they are efficient with it. So really it's got to be a balance between what the developers are comfortable with what they know um, what's going to work with their technology stack and then what the requirements of the of the product are in terms of creating a good user interface and you somehow need to balance the two of those to find the ideal framework for it yes (laughs) Uh, i have a kind of a special extra requirement for some project which is a I'm in Luxembourg, we have a lot of European institutions and things like that, so we have an extra accessibility requirement for some of those. And usually when the, de- when, yeah, when the framework was decided, 
they didn't really check about the accessibility of the framework. And then they come back a few months after the beginning of the project saying, oh, we just like the client just told us that there's this new law and we should be accessible, but we don't know how to do that. It's like, yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit too late. So for me, if to choose a framework, we need you need really to know all of the constraints at the beginning of the project. And if accessibility is one of them, you need to test your components and make sure that they are going to be accessible. But I am not a, like a React or Angular developer, but I'm pretty sure that it's super complex to turn a not accessible frame, UI framework into something accessible. I guess it might be a little bit complex to rebuild all of the components or things like that. If you find yourself working on a project where that process hasn't uh, taken place and a UI framework has already been chosen. Is there a danger that the user interface could start being influenced by the components that already exist within that framework rather than being driven by the needs of the user? It will be. Honestly, most of the projects I worked on, eventually you end up having a lot of trade-offs, even if you really try to push. And uh, So it's mostly about balance and discussing with the developers. So usually when I, what I do is we do some wireframes, like even quick paper wireframes to say, okay, on this page, we will need that and that and that component. And what uh, the first thing I, I do is I ask the developer, uh, do we have that in our framework at the moment? What does it look like? And then we decide together, okay, this is a component that will do the job. Or, okay, this is, this will not do the job. Do we tweak it? Like, do we still keep the component, but change it a little bit so that it does the job? Or do we build something from scratch? And at the end of the day, it will depend on the budget, of course. So you end up doing trade-offs. Like, uh, I would be okay for uh, small components that are almost never used if they're not perfect and there's kind of few issues. But for like main navigation, main structure, things that you see all the time on the screen, for instance, this really needs to work. The users need to understand how they work uh, efficiently. And so, yeah, it's, as you said, finding a balance between the ideal experience you wish you would have if you didn't have any framework and what you have at hand and like the budget and also time, the timing. If we say, okay, for this sprint, the feature needs to be finished at the end of the sprint. And then they say, okay, but if you want your components, it will, we will never finish the feature at the end of the sprint. Then you start discussing, okay, do we finish this feature in the next sprint? Do we take more time to do it properly? And usually it really depends. The things that frustrate me the most is when I know that we use a crop fix component. And they tell me like, oh, no, don't worry. We will fix that later. And I know that the later, unfortunately, might never happen. So depends on the team. But after a while, you have the experience and you know, will this later arrive and uh, or will it not? But yeah, it's about compromises when you're working with this kind of, uh, with this kind of tools. As a developer myself, one of the things that I like about UI frameworks is that they often come with default styling. So that means that I don't I don't necessarily need to have a designer maybe um, to, to help me with the look and feel of all the components. 
is that something that we should be relying on in projects, just the the default styling and, and trusting that whoever produced the framework has done a really good job in designing those components? Or would you be styling those components yourself? Um, I think it really depends. The problem, for instance, with Material UI is that then the look and feel of your uh, web app will be basically the look and feel of the Google products. So if you don't at least change the font, change a few colors and kind of bring your own uh, brand identity into that, you have a product that will just look like any Google product, which could be a good thing because, because if your users are used to Google products, it might help them understand it. So usually, it, if you don't have a designer in the team, do you have any choice? Like a lot of the the framework I've seen, they come with uh, custom themes. So at least you can change the colors. I think you can change the fonts also pretty easily. But again, like if you change the colors and you're not super good at design or even accessibility, maybe the colors you will use will clash. They might have like contrast problems. For instance, I love orange, but it's one of the most annoying color to work with. Because to have like a real accessible orange, for instance, as a button with white text, it's almost looks brownish. And if you want to have this like really shiny orange, you need like dark text on top of it, on top of it to make it readable. But it kind of makes your interface looks like Halloween at the end of the day. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yeah, I see you laughing, but it's true. So it's always about this kind of compromises and say, if you're a developer and you want to use uh, the, the framework as it is and you don't have a designer, I think it's still better than not having anything and building it from scratch and then it's super complex to use. But the thing is, just because you have the components doesn't mean you will build a great interface. It's like Lego bricks. If you have the Lego bricks, okay, it's fine. But you can do a really nice... Uh, spaceship or you can do something that is not holding together and will fall apart because you didn't have really a plan so design is kind of more than that design is about really understanding what's going to be on the screen how it would work and i know some developers who actually have the capability to do that so they are really good with usability guidelines they understand a lot of design rules for instance so when it comes to choosing the components, they're really good at that. And I know developers who have no idea what components to choose and choose the first one that does the job, but after a while, it doesn't work anymore. Like tabs, for instance, we had an interface where some developers choose tabs. I think it makes sense at the beginning when you only had like three items, but then there was 12 items on the screen and then you have the tabs that are like three lines of tabs and all of those are like the same level one tabs and there's like tabs within tabs. So they had the component, it looked nice because they used the framework, but it wasn't really usable. And I had the same with like uh, model windows, for instance, where they build a project uh, without a designer and after a while, I think the client asked for more and more stuff into this model. So they ended up with like uh, a screen with um, a table. And when you click on add a row, you open a model. And in this model, you have kind of two tabs. And in one of those tabs, you even have like another table. And they, they wanted to add an extra stuff into that and say, okay, maybe we can put a model on top of a model. And at some point, a designer would reply, okay, if you have that much content in a model, 
it should not be a model window. It should be a page. So even if you have the component, you still need kind of an architect to do the plan and make sure that all of those components work well, well together. So if as a designer, you're being asked to change the styling of some components, would you just try and change all of the styling? Would you customize all of it? Or are there certain areas that you'd focus on? Colors, I think, because it's the first thing you see. So colors can actually bring your identity if you have like a strong brand identity. At least having the colors of your product on the like the buttons or like the icons and things like that can already help you kind of customize the um, the framework uh, fonts because I think it's easy. If the framework is well built, usually you change the whole font family in some place. And then it should kind of uh, es- um, cascade on the rest of the um, of the site. So colors and font is like I think two easy ways to quickly customize the the framework. Icons is another nice way to bring kind of personality, but it might be difficult because from what I've seen, most of the framework come with uh, custom icons or like font sums or like a library already built in. So to replace those, first you need a lot of icons. If you want to replace them all. So it might be a little bit complex. I have also seen frameworks that let you choose which icon pack you want to use. Like Font Awesome, Glyph icons, and some of the other ones. So this is the kind of things you can quite easily customize. And then it's about look and feel. Is um, For instance, like the header. Usually you have different kind of headers, like kind of footers. How do you navigate? Things like that. So there's already a lot of small customization you can bring so that it doesn't look matter UI-ish. It more looks like your brand. And then you can play around with like border radiuses, for instance. Do you want like completely rounded buttons? Do you want like square buttons? Do you want something in the middle like shadows also? So some small stuff that are kind of usually easy to customize because most of those frameworks have them in uh, CSS var- variables. This is the kind of small things you can customize without, I think, a lot of efforts, except for this ripple effect on material UI. <laughs> I hate that. I'm going to fight it. I hope, I kind of hope they change it eventually. And I guess things like that that might seem uh, obvious, might seem just like a, um, a surface level effect. Uh, You'd think that it, that would be easy to change, and in this case, it turns out it wasn't easy to change. Is that just a case of speaking a de- speaking to your developers to find out what's going to be easy to customize and what's not going to be easy? Yeah, usually. Uh, um, especially if they're used to work with the framework, they know what's easy to change or not. It depends on the developer. I had discussion with uh, one developer, uh, and I asked him uh, if we cannot have like uppercase buttons, because they are kind of a little bit hard to read especially in the font we are using. And he went into the documentation and he said, ah, I don't know if this is if we can customize it because I I can't see it in the API. I was like, what API? It's like CSS class, you, uh, the CSS definition. You remove like uh, the uppercase from the CSS and it's done. So he was like looking for an API to change just the font um, uh, uh, how uh, does the font look like? I was like, yeah, but if you can change, if there's no API for that, I think you can change it in CSS. But then it's complex if because if you have to change this in like all of the CSS line. So it's usually kind of a big discussion. It was the same for, um, was it like drop downs? So material UI, the React version we use. 
has some customized dropdowns. So when you have a select box, like a form element, the select, it kind of opens this uh, custom uh, component. And I don't know why, but we have a big problem with that on uh, Internet Explorer. We are going to migrate to Windows 10 and Edge. I'm looking forward to it. But we are still Internet Explorer 11 at the moment. And what happens is like whenever you use you open one of those components, it freezes the screen behind it and you have a scroll bar. So it kind of jumps around whenever you want to use the, one of those. And at some point we discussed with the developer, is the customizing of that worth the screen jumping around whenever users like clicks on that? And I say, like, honestly, for me, no, I prefer uh, it not to jump and we use the select in the browser. Then it will not look the same if our users have uh, Edge and uh, no, not Edge, uh, IE, or if some users are using Firework, Firefox. I'm tired. So it will not look the same, but it will be the native one and it will not make the page jump around every time someone clicks. So it's this kind of discussion also. Do we want to customize it, but then it's kind of clumsy? Or do we say, okay, we are not going to customize it? We had the same debate with a scroll bar. Because we had like another project, we had like drop downs and there were like 100 elements uh, at some point in the drop downs. So there's an autocomplete, but you can still like scroll inside the drop down and the developers say, yeah, but this is looking really ugly on IE, the default scroll bar. And they investigated, they found a um, JavaScript uh, library that lets, uh, would let us have this like really small little uh, scroll down you have on Mac and have it everywhere. But we said, okay, is it worth investigating? We need to investigate, test it, put it everywhere, test all of the browsers. So we said, we are going to do it, but only if it doesn't damage the performance and if it doesn't damage the rest of the experience. Otherwise, it's perfectly normal that the browser element don't look the same on any browser. So at the end, yeah, don't customize any, everything. I guess it's a, a collaborative team effort then. Everyone needs to discuss and balance up again all the different performance factors, uh, ease of customization, uh, and where that customization happens. So once you've got your uh, UI framework in place, you've got all your components uh, specified and built out and, and customized and styled to how you want them, I guess you need to document that in some way to maintain consistency? Yeah. So at some point... Uh, as a designer, what we usually do, we already document them in uh, our sketch files. So we have uh, kind of the working files with uh, every single screen and everything. And in the sketch files, we have really specific artboards where we put all of the different uh, components so that uh, if another designer works on the project, they know that the components already exist and they can just like drag and drop it in a new page and reuse it afterwards. So we have this kind of system or we document the components. Also, we document uh, the use, like when do you use this components? When do you use that one? Where is this one working better? So all of the different states, for instance, like uh, inputs, we have, I think, 10 of those, like uh, focus with a placeholder, without a placeholder, with content, like errors and things like that. So again, we bring consistency. And then the development parts, it really depends like on the kind of maturity of documentation <laughs> of the team. So what we are currently building is basically a library of components 
And we are also building the tool around it. So my developer is currently uh, building that. And the idea is to build the components first in our kind of a sandbox, document it. Also, uh, he builds uh, things where you can change the colors. And uh, if you have a button, for instance, you can change the icon, you can change the text to see if uh, it will still work with like longer text, smaller text, things like that. So we are building this sandbox and uh, in the sandbox, you have like a readme tab where you have documentation for how should this doc, uh, how should this component be used? When, how is it supposed to, um, to behave? Like autocomplete, for instance, seems to be something really, really easy. But if you start actually uh, designing the flow of the autocomplete, what happens when you Put the focus in the field. Do you start auto-completing or like offering suggestion after one character, after two, after three? If it's after three, what happens in the meantime? So there's a lot of uh, different questions about that that we also document, which is really going super deep into that so that if this auto-complete uh, gets implemented on another project or gets used by another team, they know exactly how it's supposed to work as well. So we kind of do the same, uh, the two of that. So designers are documenting into the design tools. And usually in the design tools, what we also document is like colors and shadows and gradients so that the developer don't have to look around and try uh, to remember uh, exactly what the hexadecimal code for this button was and things like that. So it's again kind of... In the end, I think it's kind of... You have this UI framework that was super generic and you customized it, you made sure that the components you use are actually the ones that are going to help your goal, uh, your user accomplish their goals. And everything you've customized is kind of starting to become your own little design system. So at the end, you're building a design system, but instead of building it from scratch, you're basically building it using React material or um, what was the other one, Ant or something like that. So it's the same constraints. Would you go back to user testing at, at this point after things have actually been built? Would you go back and, and test things with users again? Mm. We have a, so we have tests, like real people testing, like regression testing and making sure that everything works. Like when you click, it works. When you hover, it works, stuff like that. But yes, in the end, especially if we didn't do a prototype if we did the user testing in uh, mockups we want sometimes to test it again with real users to have a feeling that everything is still working so yes sometimes we go again into user testing at the end we do that usually at the end of a few sprints when we have uh, the features were implemented so usually what happens is like we do the research we design the feature into um, design tools we do quick testing at the beginning then it's implemented we do tests to make sure it works. And then again, we go back to the users. And it's also interesting because we are building a community with the users. So they're actually quite eager to see that uh, the, like the first testing was a little bit kind of a sneak peek, you know, like, oh, this is what it might look like. And then they are super curious about how it works and how it looks like at the end. So we go back usually in one-on-one testing for that. Or if we don't have the time, we do just like panels. And also then it's, um, we deploy it. So sometimes we do A-B testing. Also, sometimes we de- if we don't have time for the user testing one-on-ones, we deploy it. And then we say, okay, it was deployed. 
If you have any feedback, please come back to us. Also, if you see bugs, because sometimes we completely miss a bug or something. So if we don't have time for like retesting it, we still try to find and manage to find some ways to gather feedback even after it's deployed. And over time, one of the things that might be a concern, probably from a technical point of view, is that you've built on top of a, a UI framework and then a new version of that framework comes out and things have changed. Is that a situation that you've experienced where uh, a new version has come, you want your developers want to update, but it might have implications on the design? Yeah. Uh, the thing is, we have test environments. So the really quick and dirty thing to do is like, okay, let's put the new version in one of those secure environments and see what is broken. So from uh, what I understand, like most of the time when they do a new version, they tell developers, is it going to break? Like, is this new version something completely new and it's not compatible with the old version? Or is this new version something that is just an announcement and it might not break that that many things? So, yeah, obviously, sometimes when you put a new version, it completely breaks. But this is, again, then you have, like, um, um, testing stories and, the, like, technical investigation stories to decide if we are going to migrate or not. And also, like, from what I understood, in some of the, the environment I worked on, they kind of encapsulated those in web components. So they already have kind of two different versions of Angulars. On some components, it was using one version. Of the other ones, it was using the other one. And from what I understood, it works because then you only encapsulate what you need. So this apparently is also a solution. Is Then you can use whatever version you want, but... I'm not a developer, but I think at some point you're like, okay, this component is using that version of Angular and this one, this and this. Uh, maybe it kind of becomes super hard to maintain. Do you know? Yeah. <laughs> it does. Okay. So yeah, you, you make sure it still works. And... But I don't have the feeling that Material UI or like those frameworks, even Bootstrap, for instance, they don't have any new version every year or something. It's like long life cycle and like, in the case of my tool, I think this tool will be here for 10 next year. So we'll have eventually to update. But if you're building kind of a online tool, more like a B2B product, most of the time you redesign it every three years or something. And usually there's a new technology. I was uh, talking to a friend and they're currently working on a project where they're rebuilding everything on React. And the first version was built three years ago with another technology. I really don't remember the technology, but they say, okay, we are three years later, they're already rebuilding it. And I think in like three years, they will re 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 rebuild it. So at some point, if you're like in a B2B, a B2C products, I even wonder if you update your framework or if you're going to change the design and rebuild it anyway in a few years from scratch. So is there anything else that we should be considering when building on a UI framework? Hmm, I think we covered a lot of things. I think it's like there's always a way to do quick user research, talk to the users, or at least do usability testing. Make sure like you don't design or build in a silo and try to have other people at least look at what you've created to make sure that the components as a developer uh, that you use as a developer are really the ones that are going to to do the job. And don't ask the designer to put pain on top of the framework at the end of the project because it's kind of already too late to to big infrastructure and like uh, changes. It might not work. 
So at Smashing, we have books, we have conferences, and of course we have the Smashing Magazine uh, website with loads of articles. We're all about learning. So what is it that you've been learning lately? Uh, I've been taking online uh, introduction to psychology class. <laughs> oh, Tell us a bit about that. Yes. Uh, last lesson was actually super interesting. We were talking about visual illusions and how they work with your brain. So it's really super complex. And there's uh, apparently not everyone agrees uh, on the explanation of most of those illusions. But it's interesting because uh, I had like heard, I had a small psychology lesson. Like I read books on uh, cognitive sciences and things like that. So I already knew kind of uh, the basics, but it's interesting to see like all the different aspects of psychology. So the interesting part of this lesson, uh, this course is, is it's an introduction, but it explains to you kind of all the branches from like, uh, say, um, child development psychology to trauma psychology to uh, intercultural psychology. So, and then like illusions. And I think, uh, I think this week it's really actually about uh, cognitive psychology and how to apply psychology to interfaces. So all of those really, really interesting topics. And it's nice because it's an online class. So I'm basically learning stuff in my couch <laughs> with some tea. And yeah, that's really, really cool. Oh, that's super interesting. If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Stephanie, you can follow her on Twitter, where she's at Walter Stephanie, or find her on the web at stephaniewalter.design. Thanks for joining us today, Stephanie. Do you have any parting words for us? Thanks for having me. Was a smashing experience. <laughs> this is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at SmashingMag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. Oh,